18 premium diesel. Joe Montana, Buster Douglas, John Elway, John Elway. Daisy, right, Soy, Blitz right, Travolta right, Pumpkin left, Alert, Charlotte left, on one. Bunch right, Zach, we'll go 15 tip scissors, cannon to 300 jet F stick. Victory is a great play call. Coaches, welcome back to another episode of the Play Callers Club. Fired up to have you back. We're doing a quick solo show. This is Coach Dan Casey. Before you hit your uh, Christmas break, I'm sure some of you guys are heading out of town, seeing family, traveling a little bit. Um, so hopefully this can can kind of be a little companion with you as you as you travel, as you go from place to place. Maybe you're gonna uh, throw it on in the background while you go for a run. And what I'm gonna do is you know fairly simple today. I got three, I think, pretty compelling questions. So I wanted to do a little a Q&A for um, the coaches out there. Three kind of very different topics. So I'm going to try and take, you know, 10 or 12 minutes on each question and kind of see where see where it leads us. But really good questions and definitely want to want to take some time on them. So again, this is a little bit different than a normal show. We're going to try and get back with a playoff preview. Myself, Rashad and Jake, we're all traveling a little bit over the holidays. So we're definitely going to try and try and get that to you as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, let's jump right into it. Little question and answer. Had a great question come in asking me specifically how I operate two minute drills. This is something that I don't know. I don't know if it's really talked about enough, maybe in coaching circles of, yeah, you have kind of your big picture theories of, you know, playing with tempo, getting the ball completed for first downs, getting out of bounds, different things like that, um, how you manage time, have, having timeouts, different things like that. But I want to kind of talk, I want to approach this question of the two-minute drill from the perspective of kind of formations and plays. And I think it might be a helpful way to think about it. Um, it's something that I've kind of evolved to over the years because depending different places I've been, you know, we've had teams that have been okay at two minute drill and teams that have really struggled in two minute drill. And I never felt like I really coached the two minute drill very well. I mean, there were teams I think that played with tempo regardless, like when we were playing up tempo that could do it, but it was just because it was kind of our normal offense. But I do think that there are some schematic things you can do in two minute drill that, that are going to help you. Um, so the first thing I think you need to address in two-minute drill is your pass protection. Um, seems pretty rudimentary, right? Pretty pretty standard that you address pass protection. And d- defenses, I think, have different perspectives on how they defend two-minute. You're going to have some teams that play way off, some teams that try to pressure you. And so you have to address the pass protection early. One of the mistakes, I think, that I've made over the years in two-minute drill is that we would get into five five or six-man protection and we'd have our running back as the sixth protector. Uh, and at the high school level, again, this varies, but at the high school level, oftentimes that running back is one of your better, more dynamic athletes. And so a lot of times if you're going to keep a running back in pass protection, the downside is that pressure can keep your back from getting out in, in, in into the pass concept. So one of the things that we did this past year is we actually got into 11 personnel quite a bit in two-minute drill. And instead of 
keeping the back end for protection, what we did is we would set the protection and have an off-ball tight end in the formation. So think about it like a typical 11 personnel, right, with a tight end, why off the ball might be behind the tackle or something like that. But what we would do is we would flex the running back out into almost empty. Now, it, it's empty with a tight end, right? And so the way that we would kind of give the quarterback freedom at the line of scrimmage to check protection is we would have th- four, well, let's say three calls that he could make. Four, but we'll, we'll stick with three to start. So you could get a normal half slide protection. And so if he were to give you a half slide to the left, that tight end was responsible for the backside A gap. If he was to give you a four man slide, the tight end would be responsible for the backside B gap and so on. If we did a full slide protection, that tight end would be responsible for the C gap, usually check release. Now, the reason I think this helped us so much is because one, we got an empty form- empty-ish formations, right? So your quarterback's by himself in the backfield. You do have an H-back technically attached to the formation. So for us, it's not really empty, but for the defense, that running back's out wide, they might get in an empty check. And so that benefited us because a lot of times we would get people in their empty checks when we were in two-minute, but we'd have pretty shirt-up protection. So if they brought five, brought six, we were able to handle it pretty well. One of the things that I'll say about the two-minute drill is I think a lot of times the biggest chunk plays in two-minute drill are th- in the middle of the field. And obviously, you are, you are the downside of throwing the ball in the middle of the field is the clock continuing to run, right? But if you go back, and this is what something I, I spent a decent amount of time in the offseason going back and just watching real-time two-minute drills – and especially in like the Patriots dynasty, right? When they were doing two-minute drills, a lot of those completions were happening over the middle of the field, whether it was to Gronk or Edelman or Welker. You saw a lot of times those guys making catches in the middle of the field and getting chunk plays, right? Like 14 to 16 yards. And so the way I see it as a coach is I would rather have a chunk play, a 14, 16-yard gain, than a six-yard completion and we're able to get out of bounds and save time on the clock. And the reason I talk a lot about completions over the middle of the field in two-minute drill is because I also think it's really important in two-minute drill to be able to use condensed formations. So again, a lot of times we would get in quote-unquote empty, right, with the H back, and we'd have like bunch to one side and two by, and two receiver stack on the other side. Condensed formation. So if we did complete a pass, everyone's pretty local to the football, and we're able to get back on the ball and get it snapped pretty quickly. So I think planning out some of the route concepts too, like that's I, that's one of the things I've found in the two minute drill is if you're not getting, uh, if you're getting completions but your receivers are too far from the football, that's what burns a lot of time in those two minute drills. And so, again, I'm just going to kind of talk schematically now. If you were to get in an empty, again condensed two by two with an H back attached in pass protection. Here's three pass concepts that I think are just easy money, get completions and get moving. The first one is just a super, super basic two receivers on each side and run double stick. So the inside receiver runs a a hitch, five, six yards. The outside receivers run a speed out. Quarterback, you know, a lot of times you're going to get maybe zone coverage. This isn't really a man beater, right? If you're getting zone coverage, especially versus an empty look, take that easy stick completion catch the football, knife up field, get what you can, especially at the high school level, get the first down, clock stops. Even if you get tackled on that stick route, 
you're able to get on the football within five seconds. So I've found that to be like a really high value play for us. It's just that mere double stick from a condensed set with the tight end staying in to make sure we can pass protect. Same exact formation, okay? And I know a lot of coaches hate, hate, hate the Hank concept, but we see a decent amount when we go condensed formations, see a decent amount of cover three, right? And so we took a little different approach to Hank instead of running outside curls and, uh, and out, well, I guess, yeah, curls and flats. What we would do is we would run the flats, but we would run corner curls. So they would break outside like they're running a corner, and then some coaches call it a swirl route. They'd work back inside, um, kind of work that bite route. And what I found from that condensed formation is that route was open so often. And basically you have the tight end who's in pass protection. If nobody comes, he goes and sits right over the football at six yards. So really easy pitch and catch completions, right? In two minute, you play with some tempo. You get in again, quote unquote, empty, but you force the defense to oftentimes make some sort of empty check, get into a zone. You can have that really easy kind of high-low concept, middle, uh, middle triangle read. So again, mirrored stick, which sounds really basic, rudimentary, and then basically like a Hank concept, hook curl, uh, excuse me, curl flat um, on each side with an over-the-ball route. Again, really easy completions. Everybody stays pretty close to the formation, so if you do get that completion, you're able to get on the football fast. And then the third one, you all know, mesh out of, you can do it out of that empty set. Um, you can run the OTB, run the, the mesh against man, especially you can run that mesh. And if you can do that, sprinkle in a little bit of like QB draw um, and maybe like a, a dash concept or something like that. I think getting those quick completions over the middle of the field and getting as much yardage as possible I almost prioritize that over this idea of like being able to throw a deep comeback, ripping the ball, and getting out of bounds. Um, I almost think that utilizing the middle of the field in the two-minute drill is a higher value, particularly at the high school level and potentially the college level. Now, the NFL, I know, can get a little a little tricky with, with using the middle of the field just because of um, the clock continuing to run. That obviously doesn't stop for a first down. But it's something to something to consider, right? It, it was a huge help for me to flip my mindset in two minute drill to before it was everything was really far out to the sideline, really hard completions for the quarterback. And so what I did is I brought everything in tight, condensed formations, easy, quick game pitch and catch stuff, um, being able to throw like a rhythm curl off that corner curl action, um, being able to sit there, settle in and, and throw mesh, really easy completions easy completions in the middle of the field and get as much as you can. Like the goal for us was if you make that catch knife up field, the goal was 14 to 16 yards. And if you can break off those 14 to 16 yard chunk plays, you end up moving the ball really, really quickly as opposed to, Hey, we'll take the hitch for five and he gets out of bounds. Okay. We stop the clock, but you kind of lose some of the rhythm in the drive too. And so it's just something to think about. It was a great question about kind of how I handle two minute drill. Um, I think having those three plays from a condensed set is helpful. And I also think using your tight end in protection <clears throat> and splitting your running back out and giving them almost like a false key empty formation. It's not really empty. Tight end's still in there. Um, you're still able to run all your normal slide protection and fit the tight end into the protection however you want. 
a lot of times your tight end is probably going to be a little bit better in pass pro than your running back anyway. Again, depends who's on your roster. Um, but something to think about, instead of getting in 10, stay in 11, empty the backfield out. You still have your running back who's able to kind of be a playmaker for you. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still uh, getting over a little bit of a sickness here. But um, two-minute drill, I think, is something that maybe is not talked about enough. And it's definitely something I want to spend a little bit more time on in the offseason, just kind of talking through what I think gave us some success this past season in two-minute, what I've studied um, from different teams and what they've had success with. Um, I just think the middle of the field is way underutilized in two-minute. I, I see too many coaches trying to work the sidelines, and defenses are kind of they're kind of working the sidelines too, right? So it's just something to consider, using the middle of the field, condensed formations, being able to get back on the ball quickly as opposed to spreading the field and trying to work the sidelines and get out of bounds a bunch. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that can be helpful. Um, so yeah, we'll transition to a different topic. That was two minute drill. Um, again, these are very different topics. Um, but I thought it would be kind of interesting to do a, a Q and a just cause I'm getting some really interesting questions. Um, the second one was about, uh, off season time management for coaches. Um, Seems, again, pretty simplistic. I know everybody kind of has their system. I'm just going to share with you how I approach the offseason or really how I approach the whole year um, from a time management perspective. Um, I think coaches are kind of selling themselves short when we break the season up into the season and the offseason um, because that's really there's really more to it than that. Um, and so what I've tried to do personally, again, this is, this is me personally, is I've tried to break up my calendar year into 90-day sprints, um, roughly three months. 90-day sprints, I kind of, 90 days kind of works for me. Um, three months may work for you. Um, but the, the whole idea of it is, really, it really comes from like kind of habit formation, right? So the idea that, and again, this is kind of a wives' tale, I guess, a little bit, but the idea that it takes 21 days to uh, kind of establish a habit and 90 days to make it more of like a, a like a lifestyle change, so to speak. Now, I know that's probably not completely accurate, but it's kind of a good uh, jumping off point, I think, when it comes to how we use our time and kind of how we continue to grow as coaches. So I'm going to talk to you about how I break down the year in, in these 90 day sprints. Um, so the first section, the first kind of sprint that I try to use in that, this first 90 days are kind of a growth phase for me personally. So January, February, March, those three months are me trying to soak up and learn every single thing I can. So a lot of the goals that I have for those first 90 days of the, of the calendar year. So if, you know, coming in 2024 is, um, it's a growth phase. And I also think of it as like a research phase. So in January, February, and March, I'm spending a lot of time breaking down film of offenses that I think are most effective. I'm trying to learn things that I hadn't mastered yet as a coach. Um, for example, this time last year, I was heading into January and pass protection was like a huge point of emphasis for me. And so for January, February, and March, I spent an unbelievable amount of time breaking down film, particularly of pass protection. And it reaped huge rewards for us this past season. Again, the, the kids played great, but I think my understanding of 
pass protection, I wasn't putting them in these terrible positions nearly as much. Um, it, we had a much clearer plan. And like I said, our kids played great. I think we gave up one sack all year. Um, but it goes to show you, right, that <clears throat> I needed to make it a point of emphasis for me personally. And so January and February and March of that year was a growth phase. Now, whenever, whenever I think about like a 90-day sprint, usually there's like a team goal and a personal goal. And so the team goal obviously <clears throat> had a lot to do with pass protection. Um, the personal goal for me a lot of times has to do with my health, um, fitness, you know, something like that. And so trying to break the year up into a 90-day, into four distinct 90-day sprints, when I'm thinking of a growth phase for me, both intellectually and physically, a lot of times I try to spend a lot more time in the weight room in January, February, and March. Now, I'm not a big guy by any means, but that's usually when I'm trying to um, get in the weight room a little bit, work on some numbers, um, train with weights a little bit more. Um, so January, February, March, those first 90 days of the year is a growth phase. It's hard work, a little bit of a grind, research, um, kind of pushing myself personally, both physically and mentally. Then the, the next phase that I kind of enter into is an implementation phase. So really the idea is those first 90 days were research and growth. All right, how do I integrate the things that I've learned into my life? How do I take what I've studied and start to translate it into the environment that I will be inhabiting the following season, right? So April, May, June, now I know a lot of times like this is spring ball for coaches. So it, it's kind of naturally, um, like if you're a high school or college coach, naturally like a time for implementation anyway. And so spring ball, I think, is a great time to experiment with the things that you've learned. So again, it's a 90-day sprint. It's this idea of you being able to take everything you've learned and in your growth phase and apply it to your context. Um, and so, for, for example, for me, like physically, it may go more from like weight training to maybe a little bit more cross training. Um, maybe a little bit more running than, than I had in the previous phase. Again, more like implementation, um, you know, physically. Again, this changes kind of every year based on the goals that I have. Um, and then, so again, you've got January, February, March. Then you've got April, May, June is kind of your implementation phase. And then July, August, and September. This is July, August, and September is what I think of as preseason. Um, now, I know, obviously, a lot of us are playing actual football games in August and in September. But I don't really think that our team identities crystallize until probably September-ish, right? And so I think July, August, September is really our preseason sprint. So obviously you've got training camp. That's a big portion of it. But I think all of the install that goes on prior to training camp happens in July, right? And so that 90-day sprint is kind of install, training camp, beginning of the season. And I think that can be kind of the some of the biggest coaching grind. And so for me, like if there's a portion of time where I am able to kind of take the least care of myself physically, it's often that July, August, September zone. Um, and I think in, in the past, what's happened is I've tried to keep up with it in, you know, August, September, and then come October, November, December, I'm just like, screw it. I've lost hope. 
um, will reset in January. And so what I've tried to do is actually pull back a little bit during training camp and um, the beginning of the season and then actually like reset come October um, and, and really thinking of like championship season, October, November, December, right? And so really kind of making a championship push in those last three months. Um, and obviously everybody's season ends at different places and you got to obviously fit rest into this as well. But again, just trying to, instead of thinking of football in terms of like, oh, we're in season and this is the off season, really starting to think about how do I structure the whole year to have 90 day blocks of dedicated, focused effort in the things that I'm trying to get done. And so for me, you know, that's, it's a, it's a daily practice, right. For those 90 days and trying to keep the main thing, the main thing. And, you know, I think goal setting can be, um, hit or miss. Um, but I do think having kind of these essential, um, points of emphasis for each of those 90 day sprints is really important. Um, so like if all else failed, if there's one thing that you could get done in the next 90 days, January, February, March, you know, this in 2023, it was, I'm going to figure out pass protection and I'm going to like, this was last year for me. Um, I was, I was going to start distance running this time last year. Um, and so again, you know, normally it's the weight room for whatever reason I decided last year was more, more of a distance running year for me. But I think having an intention around those 90 days helped me instead of just thinking like, oh, it's the off season. And then the following 90 days, again, you go from your growth phase to your implementation phase and having clear intentions and focused effort around the implementation. If one thing can get done, what is that one thing? Um, it, it really helps me. And then also, instead of thinking of the season as one big chunk of time, thinking about preseason extending into the actual regular season because you're still developing an identity and still ironing out details and then making having a 90-day period start in kind of in the middle of your season is kind of a way to like reset. I feel like I always need a mid-season reset where I say, all right, we were flushing the preseason on to championship, maybe it's on to conference play or um, whatever the case may be, but having kind of these clear intentions around there's a delineation of time. The season doesn't just stretch on indefinitely. And I've just, I've just found personally that operating in 90 day stretches has really helped me in so many areas of my life. Now, obviously I'm talking about football coach, right? Um, I'm talking about trying to stay in shape, but there's other things that are important too in those 90 day stretches. Like for example, I've written several football books, and some of you guys have, have had a chance to, to flip through those, The Ultimate Guide to Counter, Screen, Mesh, Empty, whatever the case may be. A lot of times, the bulk of that work gets done in two 90-day blocks. So you'll have a research phase. So like for me, I'll spend three months hardcore researching a topic and three months just like head down writing a topic. And so I found that having those like hard pushes of time, because in reality, like if you're writing a book and you don't have a publisher, like I don't have a publisher, there's not like somebody telling me, hey, I have to have this done at a certain time. It's because I want to do it, right? And so if I have these goals and have these initiatives that I'm pushing toward, how am I going to kind of hold myself accountable? And having 90-day sprints has changed my life. 
Um, I don't necessarily think of myself as like a particularly disciplined person. That's not something that comes naturally to me, but I am kind of action oriented. So if I have kind of an intention and something to go chase, I'm going to go chase it. Um, discipline for the sake of discipline is not really my thing. Right. And I think most football coaches are kind of wired that way. Right. If we haven't, if we have, um, something to chase, we'll go chase it. And so I have found in my own life, breaking it up into these three, three month, 90 day blocks has helped me just get after it in ways that, you know, have really benefited me over the, over the past few years. So, um, something I'd love to talk more about, obviously, um, having kind of a 90 day sprint where you push for something that's important in your life could be anything you really you're the one determining that um, but thinking about a growth phase an implementation phase a preseason and kind of a championship season um, is as a way to break your year up in three month chunks has you know it's changed the game for me so um, definitely have more more to say on that at another time but uh when it comes to off-season time management, I think highly underrated. And I think the most overrated thing ever is, oh, it's the off-season. Oh, we're in season. Like, I don't think that's super helpful. I, I just don't. I don't think that really communicates what's what's actually going on. Or even just saying like, oh, it's clinic season. Or, oh, it's, you know, um, it's spring ball. Uh, it's just, it's not actionable enough. Making it more actionable, making 90-day sprints a thing has really helped me. So maybe it'll help you. Um, okay. Third, third and final question before we get out of here. It's going to be a short episode today. Just <clears throat> quick, quick question and answer. This actually doesn't come from a coach it comes from a parent who, uh, son is a, is a pretty good quarterback and he is kind of asking about navigating the recruiting process as a parent of a quarterback um, so I'm going to share just a few things that I've picked up over the past couple of years and yeah, maybe, maybe it'll shed some light on some things. I'll, I'll start by saying the quarterback position is the most competitive position, maybe in all of sports. Cause at the end of the day, only one guy gets the ball. I know it's a cliche. I know everybody says it at the end of the day, only one guy gets a ball. And with the rare exception, you're not going to see a lot of like two quarterback offenses, right? And so I think what ends up happening is because it's such a competitive position, a lot of guys put a lot of pressure on themselves to start training earlier and earlier to set themselves up for success. And so guys are, you know, young kids are playing the position from the time they're seven, eight years old. When I was eight years old, the first position I ever played was like left guard. I was playing Pop Warner. I just showed up. I'd never played football before. I got thrown at left guard. And, you know, eventually I was a running back, receiver. You know, I did some different things along the way. But wiggled my way into the quarterback position by probably middle school. Um, and then some in high school, but bounced around a little bit. And then ended up starting a quarterback my senior year of high school. So I was not a good quarterback. Don't, don't get it twisted. I was not a good quarterback. But... I, I know a little bit, having coached some quarterbacks, of the pressure that's on that position right now. There's a ton of pressure on the position. It's a very difficult position to play. And the amount of training that's happening right now is 
is unbelievable. I mean, these guys are getting so much attention when it comes to mechanics. Um, you know, a lot of private quarterback coaches, they're playing seven on seven. They're doing all these things. Now, is it bad to go to a quarterback trainer and play seven on seven? No, it's not. It's not a bad at all. Um, what I will say is the most important thing for a young quarterback is getting to play real football. Getting to play real football is the thing that's going to prepare you most for the position. And that is pretty obvious, right? But I think what's happening right now in, in the evaluation process is because there's so much training, you're seeing guys throw the football better and better. So actually throwing the ball has not, not that it's gotten easier, but you're seeing more kids with proficiency in just spinning it, just throwing the football. That's not enough anymore. It's not enough to just be able to spin the ball. You have to handle so many other components of the position that are not going to be immediately evident with you just throwing the ball around. What you need is a high level of maturity and leadership traits. So I've had countless conversations this past offseason with Division I coaches. And I'll ask them about different quarterbacks because, again, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, like all these quarterbacks, right, are blowing up on social media. And with recruiting websites, they're getting four and five star ratings, right? And are they really talented kids? Yes. Can they throw the football? Yes. When they get to college, a lot of their coaches are telling me, mm, man, like, he can spin it, but just doesn't have like a presence in the locker room. He's not really respected by his teammates. Um, you know, he's kind of, he doesn't have command over the field. Um, yeah, he can throw it, but doesn't have toughness. You know, like they'll mention a lot of these different things. Now, again, this isn't throwing kids under the bus. This is, this is me just letting you know if you're a young quarterback out there that just being able to throw the football is not enough. You have to operate an offense. And these rankings, like, do not pay attention to these rankings. Who is judging these things? Like, again, I'm not saying these kids aren't talented. These five, four and five-star kids aren't talented. Of course they are. But you can't get caught up thinking about the rankings. And ultimately, in the modern age, you can't get caught up thinking oh, I'm going here, so I'm better than so-and-so who's going down here, right? The bottom line is you have to play football and you have to perform in real-life football environments, period. Great example of this is Cam Ward, right? Cam Ward from down here in Texas, great athlete, great, great quarterback, didn't have a ton of high school film, like wasn't highly recruited, ends up at University of Incarnate Word. Gets to play, tears it up. Transfers to Washington State, tears it up. And now he's kind of got his pick of the litter, right, in the transfer portal about going, going anywhere he wants. There's other quarterbacks that have tumbled down those rankings where they have started out a certain place. They've been highly, highly ranked. And... It doesn't work out at one place, so they got to go the next rung down. Doesn't work out there, they got to go the next rung down. Being in a free fall is not 
a fun place to be. You cannot get hung up on what other people are doing. You have to stay focused on what you're doing. And building your traits that are not throwing the football, they're all the other traits that you need to be successful at the position. No one's going to sit here and claim that Tom Brady had the greatest arm of all time. What really separated him was his football IQ, his work ethic, his leadership ability. And again, you go on and on and on, right? He's the greatest of all time for a reason. Patrick Mahomes has an unbelievable arm, but he doesn't get to use it all that much because of the way that people play with depth against him, right? And what's really separated him more recently is his composure, his maturity, the way he's... Now, I know this season's been tough, a lot of drops, some frustration, but his ability to take what the defense gives him and not try to overcompensate for anything. That's been a, a big reason for his success. But also being able to operate an Andy Reid offense that's highly complex, um, highly complicated. And so I would say as a, as a young quarterback, if you're going through the process, you're going to get frustrated because you're going to feel like you could play at a higher level than you're being recruited at. And that very well could be true, but you can't get caught up with that. You have to focus on where can I go play football? Like, where can I legitimately get reps? Where can I get developed? Where can I learn the game? Where can I learn leadership ability? If you just get caught up in the rankings, it's it's not going to lead to long-term success. It just won't. It won't lead to long-term success at all. And so that's, you know, a huge encouragement that I would have for you. The, this particular dad, his, his son is... Uh, is has been offered FCS scholarships. He really feels like his son is uh, better than that. Um, and, and I've turned on the tape, and honestly, like he's probably he's probably a G five talent. But again, the way that this recruiting cycle, kind of modern world we live in now, is you're probably going to end up one step lower than your ability. And I know that's hard. That's hard to swallow. Um, but you're probably going to be one rung below what you can play at right now. Um, and so instead of using that or instead of getting frustrated with that, take it as an opportunity, like where's your opportunity to grow? Excuse me. Where's your opportunity to grow? Where's your opportunity to get developed? And how are you going to develop those other skills that are going to make you great at the position? Leadership ability, maturity, football IQ, those are things to some degree within your control. Like, are you going to learn those skills? Because there's always a guy that can spin it a little bit better than you. Always a guy that can spin it a little bit better than you. And, you know, I don't think there's anybody out there on the planet throwing the ball as well as Matthew Stafford right now. But the thing that's going to separate a Stafford, like the reason he's a Super Bowl champion, is all the other things too, right? It's not just the miraculous throws. It's all the other things. It's the work ethic. It's the, the dedication. It's getting on the same page with all those receivers. It's learning McVay's offense. You know, it's all those things. So my encouragement, especially for these young guys that are um, working their way through, uh, there's a lot of ranking inflation out there. So what happens in a lot of like these kind of better states, right? Like Texas, for example, or California is in some ways 
kids get over recruited a little bit. And so you'll see that top tier, that top band of quarterbacks. They're good, man. Like they're just good freaking football players. And what ends up happening is because those guys are so elite, that kind of second band of players gets over recruited when they're not maybe quite as talented as kind of the upper echelon kids. And so what ends up happening is you you do end up having certain kids from certain areas get over recruited and kids from other areas maybe get under recruited because they don't have the same kind of exposure, right? Now I know social media is out there, but like there's a lot going on when it comes to recruiting and it comes to quarterbacks and you're seeing a pretty significant miss rate on quarterbacks. You're seeing really highly ranked guys not pan out. So don't get caught up in the rankings. You got to control what you can control, which is your football IQ, your leadership ability, and the focus and effort and work you put in. Everything else will take care of itself. Go somewhere where you can play, prove that you can play, develop that toughness, and you need a little bit of luck too. Let's be honest. You need a little bit of luck. Um, but that would be my encouragement. Don't get caught up in the rankings. Um, don't focus on somebody else's journey. Focus on yours. And I'm talking to quarterbacks right now, but I'm talking to coaches as well, right? Like, it's so easy to look at somebody else's journey. Think, hey, I I think I could coach. You know, this guy's power five. Like, I feel like I, I, feel like I can match that guy. But you're focused on somebody else's journey, not your own. And at the end of the day, the only thing you have control over is your growth. And that's why I go back to 90-day sprints, man. Growth phase every year. Implementation phase every year. Preseason phase every year. Championship season every year. If you can have, if you can stack years with focused effort like that, you'll be amazed where you end up. Victory. Victory.